And then for that person, before they die, there's a thing called the tunnel. If you know somebody who wants to die by suicide, if this has been a long conversation and all of a sudden they look like they're perking up and you think you can exhale, get extra vigilant because there is this thing, which I only learned about after called the tunnel where they have already planned their date and their time. And they're so they're calmed by the fact that they know their exit. And so it could be that for a week or two before that they, when they planned it, now everything is great. They're in the best mood. They're calm, they're happy, they're like everything, because they know that it's planned and it's gonna happen. And that happened for Donnie. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories, one story at a time, in a world of mental health, together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello and welcome back. Hope you enjoyed the first episode of this two-part series with Aliza Bulo. This will be the last episode for this month of September. We're wrapping up the month of September. What a heavy topic, suicide awareness, but so important. I was shocked by how many people listen to these episodes. It's amazing how there is so little awareness and how much we need to talk about it more, support each other, listen, and help as much as we can. So if you didn't listen to the first part of this two-part series with Aliza Bulo about her son, Donnie, and living with a son for 15 years out of his 19 years of life, 15 years of him wanting to leave this world and what was it like as a mother, as a family? What was the conversation like? If you haven't listened to the first part, don't listen to this before you go back to the episode right before this one and listen to that episode. It was just too long to make one long episode out of it, so we split it into two. Next month, we're going into mental health in the workforce, how to stay healthy in the workforce, how to be aware of boundaries, what is important, how to be aware of anxiety, depression, mental illness that changes in us due to certain circumstances in the workforce. I find that a lot of people speak to me about this topic, and I thought that it will be very important to devote a whole month to discuss how to keep ourselves healthy, mentally healthy in the workforce. So that will be the month of October. We are wrapping up September. Hope you enjoy this month and it gave you some clarity. I shouldn't say enjoy because it's really a heavy topic. Hope it gave you some clarity, some guidance, some hope, some inspiration. If you like these episodes, please share it with loved ones that might be struggling with suicide thoughts, with suicidal attempts maybe, or just struggling with staying alive. Share these episodes with them. And if you have a moment, do us a favor. Pay it forward by going to iTunes and leaving a review. It would help us tremendously. If you want to say thank you to Hope to Recharge 
and the entire staff, this is the way to say thank you. Leave us a comment and a review. Thank you. Enjoy this episode. Living with mental illness can be full of pain, frustration, and anguish. At times, it can feel like you are completely alone. Well-meaning loved ones may not understand what you are going through and might not be able to offer the support you need. Finding the right source of support is crucial to your journey of healing. While we always encourage you to seek appropriate medical and psychological help, adding someone to your team who has been where you are can provide a much-needed shoulder to lean on. Matana knows what it is like to feel debilitating anxiety, and through her own journey of more than a decade living with mental illness, she has spoken with hundreds of others navigating their own anxiety and depression. Matana is not a therapist or a doctor, but has been able to partner with many individuals like yourself, creating a strategy toward mental, physical, and emotional well-being. One-on-ones with Matana are self-paced conversations, allowing you to move forward at a comfortable pace. She'll work with you as you discover your own path and the steps that are right for you. To schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Matana, head over to hopetorecharge.com forward slash free. That's hopetorecharge.com forward slash F-R-E-E. Or you can click the link in today's show notes. And now let's get right back to Matana and today's conversation. Did he ever feel that you're not feeling his pain because you were smiling? Like, how could you smile when I'm dying inside? Well, I knew that I couldn't feel his pain. I mean, he would tell me, you know, we have this tradition in the morning when we wake up to say, thank you, Hashem, for waking me up. Thank you, God, for waking me up and bringing my soul back to me. So I say that every morning. And the end of it is God believes in me. We say that. So it's not that we believe in God. God trusts in me. How empowering is that to wake up every day saying, God, you believe in me. And I can handle this day because you believe in me. So my son, of course, knew that tradition, but didn't say that in the mornings. And he told me that he felt the opposite. Like for the few, until he stopped believing in God, there was a time when he would look at God in the morning and instead of saying, thank you for waking me up, he's like, really? You woke me up again? Wow. Why didn't you? Because he didn't want to kill himself. He just didn't want to be alive. He was hoping God would just take him. Right. And every morning when he woke up, he was disappointed. One of the sto- one of the questions that I asked you when we were talking back and forth, I said, do you feel that it's as somebody that lived with a child that was in so much pain for so many years and you really saw the roller coaster and you really saw how you tried almost everything like you you can't say you didn't try. You try, you try, you try, you try, you try, and you're praying and you did the positive energy and the therapy and the, the remote living and everything you can imagine, right? The different schools, tons of medication, cocktails. Did you ever say, why am I asking him to live for me? Is it fair? He wants to go. He so doesn't, he doesn't feel like he fits here. Why am I trying to force him to live for me? Because I love life and I believe that we should fight for life. And I believe life is about challenges and I believe life is beautiful. And I know that if he leaves me, I'm going to be devastated and miss him. So is it a selfish act to ask people to live for us? I think it is. And I was willing to be selfish and not at the same time. And so I'll tell you the two feelings in there. So A, yes, it's very selfish to say, because we did actually boil the conversation down to that. Why should I live? Why should I live? Why should I live? And in the end, after we discussed all the options, which he rejected, I said, but I still want you to live. And he said, so Ima, he said, are you asking me 
And I said, because I'll be in so much pain if you die. He said, so Ima, are you asking me to lead a life of pain to spare you the pain of burying me? So I said, yes, I am. But even as I said the word yes, I knew inside that that was selfish to say. Like, how could I ask him to lead a life of pain to spare me the pain of burying him? And yet the right thing to say is, yes, I'm asking for that. But I didn't say it with a full heart because I couldn't ask him for that. Now, that, even though I did. But that being said, setting that aside, so then when might you say he's in so much pain, he should be able to die if he so chooses? And I think that, because when you said, when do we step aside? I don't think we do. I really thought about it. We don't ever because the actual illness in this case is the desire to die. As opposed to, let's say, a cancer death where the cancer is killing you. And at some point you say, it's time to stop treatment. You're dying and another treatment's going to get you another few weeks, but those another few weeks are going to be so nauseating and harrowing and painful that we're now just going to, we're going to make a decision together to just give you pain medication. But the same thing is with depression, which it's treatment, it's treatment, it's fixing the brain, it's trying to fix the brain, no? It's yes and no. Because let's just go for the actual cancer for a minute. The actual cancer is causing the body to shut down Mm -hmm. where the body can no longer make it. And actually there is only so much treatment you can give before the body's just going to shut down anyway. Like Mm -hmm. there's just, you can't go further than that. Right. So you could make a choice towards the end if you're going to go for another month or not, but you can't make a choice to go for another decade or not. It's not your choice. You just can't. So it's not there. And the person is in pain. So there, you could, there's some equation where some people say before they get to the end of all that pain, they might say, okay, I know that in four months, I'm going to be in tremendous pain as I die. So I'm going to choose to end it now before I'm in so much pain and just say goodbye to everybody while I still have my faculties. There are cancer patients like that. Now let's move over into suicidality because it's not necessarily depression. Let's call it suicidality, which is separate. Okay. But you're living in this, I want to die. I want to die is sick. It's a feeling of that is a reflection of something broken. So we never, with a diabetic, we never say to the diabetic, the fact that you can't process sugar means I'm just going to step out of the way. Your body is trying to die. But the diabetic says, wait a second, but I actually want to live. So please give me insulin. Teach me the diet stuff. Teach me the exercise stuff. Like whatever, like, Tell me how to figure this out because I want to live. Something's broken. Don't step out of the way just because something's broken, right? A hundred years ago, if that thing was broken, you died from that broken thing. And today we have stuff that helps you over a hump. You could live for decades with pretty severe diabetes and, and have a life. So for the person with suicidality, that is the disease. It's not that they're, and they do die of their disease. You're saying it's not a side effect of the disease. It is. That is the disease, right? That's right. It's not a side effect. That is the disease. Wait, what, so one second. I want to take this a little, a step for a little bit further because I, I want to understand this, this idea of, of people living in pain for a better good of others or for, or for us believing that it's good for them. It's a difference of belief, right? So you tell a story. I want to, we didn't bring this into here. Your grandson, your daughter's child and he had he had spasms what did he have he had a seizure disorder he had a seizure disorder yeah so he had a seizure disorder where his brain was just like his like the electrical system of his brain was firing 
so often. He had about 40 seizures. Oh a my minute. goodness. Some you could see and some you couldn't see. Um, some were so some were clinical, meaning you could see it, and some were subclinical, meaning you couldn't see it. But his brain was just like, I mean, just a live wire that they couldn't calm. They couldn't. With all the medication that they have, is a very rare condition. It's called migrating partial seizures of infancy. And they only have like 250 documented cases worldwide, but it's spontaneous start, drug resistant, always fatal. That's what it is. So no family history. And it doesn't like you, you wouldn't ever think another child might have it. Just a spontaneous start and all the drugs they tried and the keto diet and whatever, all their best science, they could not get rid of it. And um, so all they could do was put him on pain meds until he died. Did they let go of the pain meds eventually to let him let go and not live this torturous life? So the pain meds, no. So that's a thing. And pain, you don't let go of pain meds because the pain meds only address the pain. They don't address the seizure mm-hmm. disorder. It was the seizure disorder that was killing him. The seizure disorder. I mean, basically what happens is he, he just imagine so many electrical zaps that eventually it shuts down the other organs. So he had no so, way to survive. Every, he had no way to you survive. Can't. You can't. You can't keep somebody alive through it. You can't. They did what they could, but they couldn't. So until he could, I mean, he couldn't swallow anymore. So they put a tube down his nose to give him nutrition, but then he couldn't digest anymore. Even what they put down came up like he couldn't, his body was shutting down. So there did come a point when they said like, you can't give food anymore because now it's just bubbling up. The only thing you could give is pain medication. That's just enough to keep him out of pain until he dies because he's dying and there's no stopping it. There's nothing that we can do. It's not like they stepped out of the way. There is nothing we can do to keep this boy alive. And so we'll just keep him pain free until he dies or keep his pain down until he dies. That's all we can do. So, so why am I comparing it? Why am I comparing it? Because a woman that I interviewed, actually I interviewed a few times, her son died from um, suicide. And she says that suicide is a seizure of the brain. And it goes, they, they, it goes into this, uh, uh, like a seizure saying, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to, and you hope to catch them during that period of time that they're like in this loop of, I'm going to kill myself. And they sometimes reach out and sometimes not. If they reach out, that's when we save them, or we feel like we could talk them out of it or we get them help. So why is it any different? It is different because if you can, if you're epileptic and you have those kinds of seizures, you can live with that. You might not be able to drive a car with that, but you could get married and have a job and have a life. If you can catch the seizures and figure out how to make them not lethal, right? You're not allowed to be a tightrope walker if you're an epileptic because you might die from having a seizure on the tightrope. Mm-hmm. But, and you want to be extra careful when you cross a street, you know, make sure you, you're not just dashing. Like there's a lot of space in case something happens while you're crossing. I don't know all the things epileptics have to be care, careful about, but because you know you're going to have seizures, you plan for it. And the seizures themselves aren't lethal. But you're right, in a way that is a parable, it's only a parable, a, a parable to suicidality. And there's many different types, I think, of suicidality. Because I think there are like, cons- I think my, for my son, it was a constant thing. It wasn't just a seizure. It wasn't, it was a, he wanted to be dead. I think for some people- Yeah, but she was saying when they actually go into the suicide attempt is when they're like- Not always, they're- that's what I say, there's okay. differences. It's not always the case. It's not because there's a thing called- Let's just do that for a second. Let me finish that thought. And then the second one, 
So it, there, it is true that in some cases, it's like a seizure. Like I would say for people who suffered a serious setback, their girlfriend broke up with them. They lost all their money in the stock market. They failed their bar exam. They like something big, right? They're like, I can't live with this. And so I'll kill myself. That's a seizure, right? But that's different from somebody who's been planning for a long time. I want to die. 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 And then for that person, before they die, there's a thing called the tunnel. If you know somebody who wants to die by suicide, if this has been a long conversation and all of a sudden they look like they're perking up and you think you can exhale, get extra vigilant because there is this thing, which I only learned about after called the tunnel where they have already planned their date and their time. And they're so they're calmed by the fact that they know their exit. And so it could be that for a week or two before that they, when they planned it, now everything is great. They're in the best mood. Wow. They're calm. They're happy. They're like everything. Cause they know that it's planned and it's going to happen. And that happened wow. for Donnie. There was a tunnel and he was able to tie things up. He went out for lunch with his, he went out for lunch with his brother and he called a few people to say, look, different things, like make sure their computer was working or whatever it was like to tie up some loose ends. And he was just in such a good mood, you know, cause he had gone through a tumultuous time in the spring. And then he was in this great mood. I was like, phew, that seizure has passed. I thought I don't have to worry so much right now. I had even taken him on one of my trips cause I traveled a lot at that time and he was on a suicide watch for a while. I took him on a trip with me to Wisconsin and didn't let him go and was even nervous that I'd let him like walk out on the street for an hour while I met with the rabbi. Like I wasn't even sure if I should let him go in this college town and just explore the street for an hour alone. And he was fine during that time. And then when we came back, like it, it cleared up so nice. I was like, oh, I can exhale. Like, look how great he's doing. We have turned the corner. And that is because he knew he was ready and he was so calm. Wow. So like, and he followed like all the rules. It was right before a holiday. And we went for uh, the holiday of Shavuot to a friend's house. And he stayed, he usually didn't even go to friend's houses with us. Like he would not do that. But he was like, shall I go with you? He said, would you like me to, oh, he wore a hat. He wouldn't wear a yarmulke, but he wore a hat. Sometimes he wouldn't even do that. He wore a hat. And, and then before he left, he saw there were only three men. He was the third. He said, would you like to say the grace after meals with three men before I leave? Because there's a thing to say with three men. Would you like me to be the third before I leave? So he offered that. He recognized it and offered it before he left the house. Yeah. So you were confused. You're like, like, oh, wow. Oh, oh, he's wow. Amazing. He's, <laughs> he's turning his corner. Wow. Fantastic. Oh yeah. my! He was God. just so respectful, so pleasant, so caring, so loving, so like everything was going great. And then, and and I was supposed to go on a trip that night, and I stayed up till two o'clock in the morning preparing everything for my trip. I was leaving in the morning, and he came to hug me good night and kiss me good night and say, "Ema, you really need to get some sleep. You have a trip tomorrow." I'm like, yes, I do. And I had no clue. That's because he was like waiting for me to go to sleep so he could do this, and he was totally calm. Ema, you need some sleep. Good night. Have a great trip. I love you. Hug, kiss. I went to bed. And then like, I don't know, he had an older dog. And I thought, what's happening to his dog? I hear like choking, like some weird noise that I didn't recognize. I ran downstairs and I saw it was him. It was Donnie on the floor in front of our front door. And I ran and I 
grabbed our home phone to call 911 and there was no line. He had cut the line. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> he was clear this was going to work. He had cut the line. And I ran upstairs to get my cell phone and wake my husband up. And we called 911. And she tried to tell me to do mouth to mouth resuscitation, what to do. And I was like, oh no. I knew that he had some kind of poison. And there was no way I was putting my mouth in his mouth because I knew he had swallowed something. How did you know it was poison? We taught, I, I knew in that moment not to touch his mouth, um, but I, but because we had talked about it, he asked me, he said, Ima, when I do die, it's not going to be because I don't love you and you don't love me. I, I, I feel loved by you and I love you. So I just, I can't live in this world. So, so what's your preferred method of how I should kill myself? I was like, <laughs> not, <laughs> so I can't tell you a preferred <laughs> method, but I oh can tell God. you my least preferred methods. I said, Please did you actually tell him? I did. I said, please don't shoot yourself because I can't bear to find that. And I said, please oh don't hang yourself because I can't bear to find that. Oh so I God. knew that he ordered poison to take care of me. Like I knew that it was put like the finding him having swallowed poison and a little bit foaming and a little bit writhing, but not terrible. I knew that that was to take like he thought, OK, my mother's going to find me, but at least it's not going to be in a bloody mess or hanging, like it's not as bad a find. So I knew even in that moment that he was thinking of me, but I also knew not to put my mouth in his mouth. How did you know it wasn't like a bottle of like um, antidepressants or something like that? I didn't like know that. for sure. I just knew not oh, to put know. my mouth in his mouth. He okay. was foaming just a drop, oh, okay. just a drop. And I knew right. like I'm not, just in case, I don't know what it was, but um, I knew not. Wow. Because if it was, wow. and it wasn't, I don't want to say what it was. And we made a decision not to say just because for anybody who's contemplating, you shouldn't know what works. Exactly. 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 And how much yeah. and whatever. But do you think he really knew that it wasn't an oh, attempt yeah. and, and to try? You knew that you knew that he knew that was the last night he was yeah. living. Yeah. 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 Like I didn't know then, but yes, because he even like, for instance, with my, um, our middle son who lived in Boulder at the time just a 40 minute drive from here. He told, he knew Donnie was suicidal. He said, Donnie, before you do anything, promise me, you will call me, promise me. So as Donnie said, yes, I promise you. So he did, but he didn't say he was planning this. He kept his promise. He was a Dafkanek. He knew how to keep the exit. He promised he would call and he called. He called him and said, how are you doing? What's up? Whatever, he chatted for a few minutes and hung up. It was just a, like a nice call, brother to brother. It wasn't a, I'm planning anything. He kept his promise, though. He kept his promise. Oh so God. he knew for sure. Oh he knew, and he he wiped his computer. Like he knew. Like he he cut the phone line. He wiped his computers. He like he planned it. He was going very clearly. Like he knew this was it. And he had had some other attempts. Even one one other attempt was with chloroform. And he told me I didn't know at the time, but he was throwing up and throwing up and throwing up, and. Um, and he, I said, what's going on with you? Why are you throwing up so much? He said, I think it's food poisoning. I think I had some pizza that I had. It wasn't good. And, and then he, so I just sat with him, you know, a cold washcloth and holding him. And, and he said, if I keep throwing up like this, I'll probably have to go to the emergency room and get some fluids. Even that gave me hope. Cause I'm like, oh yes. If you're thinking emergency room and fluids, that means you want to live because you know, you need an IV to right. be hydrated, to stop throwing up, to live. That's good. And a few weeks later was this. So that, I, and then later he told me that was an attempt. I didn't know that at the time when I was holding him, wow. but he said that was a failed attempt. So, um, wow. yeah, no, this was clearly. Wow. But can I ask you a question? What? I'm still processing. I'm really, really processing. I give you so much courage and so much respect 
really so much respect for even having the conversation with him. Like, please don't do it by hanging and please don't shoot yourself. How many mothers, I mean, would have that conversation, would say, oh, stop your shenanigans. Don't even talk about it. I don't, you're not killing yourself. You're not, da, da, and not addressing it. And their pain just gets so much more. They were so much more frustrated. You're not getting it. I am going to do it. You're just not getting it. So just snap in, like be with me yeah. here. And you were willing, yeah. I feel like you were willing to gift him something of a peace of mind in one, maybe a, a part of his life that he needed. Okay, what can I do? Because I'm going to hurt my mother now. She for sure will hurt. But how can I do it in the most kind, loving way for me and for her together? I know this is such a mind twister. That's what he was asking me. Like, how, like, I want, like, yeah, it's weird. To have, even thinking now, it's like, how did we have that conversation? But that's what he was asking me. Like, I'm going to do this. So what's your preferred method? And I think in a way yeah. you said to him, I see your pain. I'm no longer going to say you're not in pain. I'm no longer going to say um, doubt the fact that you're really planning it. I'm seeing it because I'm willing to engage in the conversation. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Are you looking for online therapy? Are you stuck at home like everyone else? high stress, high anxiety, worried about the future, trying to navigate everything, have a lot of worries, had a lot of emotional roller coaster rides up and down, just like me, betterhelp.com is one phone call away, one Zoom call away, one text away. It's an online platform for therapy. It's so perfect for now, for coronavirus, for what people are going through now. We can reach out and get the perfect therapist that meets our needs. Don't wait. Check them out. See if you can find somebody. Don't struggle. They're so affordable. They are so affordable. You're sitting at home. Every therapist is working online now. Reach out and get help you need. If you are struggling, don't struggle in silence. I am so grateful that they are giving us 10% off the first month so you can get affordable access to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Start your wellness, get help, get support you need. I knew he was going to die that way. Did I know 100%? I knew 98%. I was not shocked at all on any level that he did. It was still surprising in the moment. It was still an emergency in the moment, but it, it wasn't shocking at all. And going to the hospital, I was also like, he was alive still when the paramedics came, they took him to the hospital, they worked on him, they worked on him. They had like a team of 20. We followed in the car behind and they had like a team of 20 all around trying everything. And they asked us, what, what did he take? We didn't know, we didn't know, we didn't know. Finally, we called his brother, he knew. We told them they tried all the antidotes they possibly could. And finally, um, and they sent a social worker to sit with us. Mm. I'm like, why did you send us? So like, first I had tons of hope. Oh, he's in the hospital. He's still alive. They're going to take care of this. This is going to, this is going to be a fail all the time. The social worker is with us. And I'm thinking, you don't send social workers to sit with families in the emergency no. room for nothing. No. So finally I had to go to the bathroom. And as she walked me to the bathroom, I said, are you sitting with us? Because he's going to die. Is that why you're here? And she's like, they just want there to be a social worker with you. We're just here with you. I'm like, 
don't give me that crap. Right. <laughs> Tell me why you're here. Right. Wow. And then they admitted him. Then they admitted him. And I thought, oh, wow. Well, Hope. Yeah, they admitted him. So they sent us upstairs to the pediatrics floor where he would be. He was 19, so still pediatrics. And we went up to the waiting pediatrics waiting room, waiting for him to check into a room. And on the way up, they did an MRI of his brain. And? And by the time they had him in the room, they said, they, they came with us in the room and they said, there's no brain activity. Wow. He, keep, he keeps crashing and we keep bringing him back because we thought, okay, he's in bad shape. If he'll just recover and be, maybe this caused brain damage. Maybe he'll be stupid because he was brilliant. Maybe he'll be stupid, but happy. Like we would trade that. Like he let him be low. Let him be stupid his whole life, but just happy to be alive. Well, we would be willing to make that exchange. But when they came up and they said, there's just no brain activity, the next time he crashes, we want permission to not revive him. So we called the rabbi and the rabbi said, and, they, and he spoke to them on the phone and he said, yeah, you have that permission. You don't, given what you're telling me, you do not have to revive the next time he crashes. Hmm. So we were all able, before he crashed, we had like an hour still, we didn't know when the next crash would be, but everybody went, was able to go in and say goodbye, hold his hand and talk to him and Tell me about that moment. I want to know about the moment of a mom, like giving him yeah. permission to leave. You were giving him, we were talking about it. Like I didn't give him permission to leave. Like it was the recognition. It was no permission. It wasn't. That's when you stand up. There was no permission to leave because he, you couldn't save him. So there, it was not like, let's say your Alzheimer's parent in the coma where you have to tell them it's okay, mom. You can go now. It was not that yeah. at all because he wasn't hanging on. It, he was about to die. Like he was, his whole body was going to crash again. And unless they preserved it through artificial means and popped it up again, his brain couldn't keep it working. It wasn't possible. So I held his hand. I just held his hand and I kissed him. And I said, Donnie, you got wow. your wish. I forced myself to say that, but I did. I like, I heard like he got his wish and I recognize that like he, he won. He'd been trying for a long time and he won. We lost, but he won. So I just, I didn't like give him permission, but I did recognize that he, he got his wish. And I just, I held his hand and I, I left the room before he died. I mean, he was, he was really dead already. His face, you couldn't recognize. Like he, like it, probably his mission was already gone, his soul. But even though we understand that souls are still mm -hmm. with bodies until they're actually right. buried. So in the room, somehow he was still there, but his face was already like, so it wasn't a sleeping look. It was a blank look when blood was still going through his veins, but he wasn't really there. Right. Wow. I have a, a I know that we're a little bit over the time and I have one or two more questions that I want to ask because I think it's important. First of all, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being so open with your story, because I think the fact that you share this story gives others permission to not judge themselves just because a loved one died from suicide. And there's so much judgment and stigma. There's so much judgment. And there should not be. He died of his illness. Right. Like, I don't believe you step out of the way like you do with a seizure disorder or, but he died of his illness. There's no question. There's no stigma there, in my opinion. How, how could you have stigma for somebody who was sick and died? Right. He died of a sickness. Right. 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 So, right. Yeah. So your courage is giving others permission to talk about it. Also permission for parents that are having these conversations and their kids are still alive or their spouses or their best friends. 
how to engage in these conversations, how to not to be afraid, how not to shut them down, how to how to connect and then disconnect, how to be the caretaker without of like, as you say, schlepping the bag of the pain with you all along. There's so many components in this conversation that's so important. And by you sharing it gives others, first of all, the frame of mind of saying, oh, I'm not broken. It's not my fault. It's, I didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do, you were not a bad mother. You were an excellent mother. You're probably the better than 20 moms with, with average children combined 24 seven to get through a year of his life. And I'm not joking. I know I, I wasn't as sick as Donnie, but I know what my husband needed to do to pamper me through my deep depression. I wasn't bipolar. I didn't struggle with bipolar. I didn't struggle with suicide. I was just very, very, very depressed. And just to get through the day was hell and anxiety. So I know how much he had to put into me just to survive, just to survive. So can you imagine with a child, like, I, I, I just want to give you so much credit for keep on trying and for being optimistic and for looking, for understanding and for sharing. All this is like it, we need more Alizas in the world because if we have more Alizas, maybe the conversation will open and we will prevent or understand what a broken mind is and try to help them better and try to have empathy or I don't even know what we could do, but just have more conversations because sometimes we shut the conversation down. And more, I think what's really important also is more empathy for the parents. Like I right now I'm in touch with a, another mother who recently lost a daughter to suicide and she's so broken, of course, so broken. But I think there wasn't the pre-processing and it was not a shock to her. Her daughter was, had such a hard time. But the marriage is, is very stressed right now, too. And some of that is because you could process your sorrow through anger and you could get married, mad at your spouse or start to blame or start to wonder and start to reprocess. And, and rather than just saying, you know what, our child died because they were sick. And if we don't turn towards each other, what will we have? We should lose our child and our marriage. We should lose our child yeah. and our family. Or should we just say, you know what, Uh, we lost our child and it's a terrible sorrow. Let's turn towards each other and support each other and love each other through this. So I think that's so vital to say, like, I love you no matter what. And I will be here with you. We will go through this together. And to extend to other, to parents and family of somebody who died by suicide, they need so much compassion, so much compassion. They're in so much pain. So I think that's a very important piece of the conversation is how much support could you give to somebody with no blame, just support because they're blaming themselves enough. You know, they don't need anybody in the community saying when we sat shit, but we started to keep track of the stupid things people said. And that was just part of our game to keep us going. We developed a very strong gallows humor. One person came in and they said, Oh, he had depression. Did you, did you know there's antidepressants? Oh no. And we're thinking, Oh, no. We should have said to that person, oh, now you're telling us, why didn't you tell us 48 hours ago? You could have saved his life. No way. Did they really <laughs> say that? People are so stupid. Oh, like, my God. But I had a... Oh, my God. You know, I... And if we didn't know, you should tell us now. <laughs> this is the right. <laughs> oh, my God. God, oh my God. But I, I I once interviewed a woman that her husband just dropped it at work. It was awful. She had five little kids and her husband went to work and just didn't come back. Literally like a, a, a young guy. Her youngest was, I think, one. And 
And she said, people have said the stupidest things. And she said, but she decided not to judge them because sometimes you just don't have the words. And because you're so uncomfortable, you just don't know what to say. But she, and, and she said, one thing, just don't avoid me at the supermarket. Don't avoid looking at me at the supermarket. Like have a little bit of compassion to me and give me a smile. You talk about the smile a lot, right? The power of a smile. I do the a smile a day since 2020. It was my thing because my husband is a natural smiler. He just wakes up and he smiles and smiles. And I'm like, and I used to say to him, what are you so happy about? And uh, he was just like, because I'm alive. I have another day. And, I, and he had like the worst upbringing. He should be crying his whole life. And he's like, I have another day. And he's singing. And I'm like, I just woke up. Can you stop? You're so loud. And then I realized that his smile, really, if I chose, it should be impacting me versus, and he used to say, your gray sky won't impact my sunny day. I'm not going to let your gray sky impact okay. my sunny day. And that's how he got through my depression. He said, it's not that I didn't have the empathy, but I'm going to get through it because I have my sunny sky. And I'm not going to let your clouds come into my sunny sky. So the smile and a smile is so important. So in 2020, I did my big goal was to start the day with a smile and end it with a smile and increase it just because just Mm -hmm. because and the energy that's created from smiles is unbelievable, unbelievable. So I, I say like smile at somebody if somebody went through something like smile at them. And somebody taught me that also her, her kid died from suicide. She's like, tell me about my child. If you knew my child, tell me about them. Tell me because the stories I'm going to have is only what people are going to remember. Don't like share with me. That's bringing him alive. The last question I'm going to ask you, and then I'm going to let you go. And I'm sorry, we're over time. I want to ask you if once you accepted that he died by suicide and it's over, did a part of you have comfort for him and say, he's no longer suffering? I'll be the sufferer. Yeah, two parts of comfort. One was for him and one was for me, frankly. So for sure for him, he's no longer suffering. There's definitely that comfort. Even though I took on so much more suffering than I thought possible as a mother who's lost a child. And at the same time, and this is the extra honest and brave, say it in front of everyone, I, there's also a relief, just like there's a relief after your Alzheimer's mother dies or your cancer whatever, child dies, there's the relief of the sufferings over for you to not see them suffering. But there's also the relief for me to not worry about it every day, every day. I, the first night of Shiva, all the kids moved into the house, all the married kids, they all slept here. And Donnie was the youngest, so everybody was out. So our house was full of kids. And in the middle of the night, I heard something. Somebody got up to go to the bathroom or get something to eat, whatever it was, two o'clock in the morning. I picked up my head, acknowledged that I heard it and put my head back on the pillow to go back to sleep. And I thought, oh, I just heard a bump in the night and I didn't get up to check it out because I'm not worried about it. And I, in that moment, realized I had gotten up every night that I heard something for years. (gasps) I was always worried about that bump in the night. What was that? What was that? So, and here I knew I didn't have to worry. No, I wasn't worried about any other child, you know, and they all are grownups. They can all get up and go to the bathroom, make a snack, go on the computer, whatever they want to do. Like, doesn't matter. I don't have to worry about it. I could go back to sleep right now. So there was that relief too of, I don't have to worry every morning when I go down to wake him up, I don't have to like check around the corner and see, is he alive? Is he alive? Is he alive? Is he alive? What will I find this morning? I was like, 
I was out of that. So there was the relief for me too. I no longer have to carry this. So there was that. And then of course, all the guilt of feeling relieved. Like you should feel relieved at the same time you're feeling sorrow. What's that? So yeah, all that. I, I actually was just about to ask you about the guilt. I want to have you on again in a few months when you clear your schedule about guilt. Guilt that people have, we touched upon it, upon it on this episode, but guilt that we carry that is very unhelpful for our positive energy and for mental illness and for stability of any home without mental illness, positive energy is important. Guilt is something that, you know, Rabbi Erlowick says guilt is not part of the Jewish tradition. There's no word in Hebrew that's guilt. Do you know that? Right. So, right. so like, why, next episode. Next, <laughs> so we're do an episode because I think that guilt is what kills us sometimes. It kills us. It doesn't make us stronger. It makes us weaker. It may. It's not empathy. It's not sympathy. It's not being kind. It's 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 not being a warrior. It's not. So yeah. I want to have you on that because you ended with that word guilt. I want to because it's so important. It's so important for for people that struggle with with so much guilt and shame and all that. And so I'm going to have you on on that because I think you can really shed so much wisdom and light for others and um, help others that, that support loved ones with mental illness to not walk around with that guilt and shame because there's too much. The last question I always ask everyone, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for making time for me and for our community and for sharing your story and for being so brave and for keep moving on, even though the part of you did die with your son, a part of you will forever be dead with your son. And, um, but you chose life, you chose life and you chose to be the living one with him. And I'm sure you talked to him and I'm sure you smiled to him. I'm sure you have conversations with him, right? Aliza's smiling now and nodding. Yes. What does the word hope mean to you? Well, it's certainly a future word. And I feel like I'm such a future I mean, hope is very exciting. It really is the, that everything is going to be good. And if it's not yet good, it's not yet the end. You know, there's that, I forgot, I think it's a a movie, Color of Magnolia, something like that. Anyway, they said that regularly. And I like that line, that in the end, everything's going to be good. And if it's not yet good, it's not yet the end. So that's hope, right? Is that in the end, everything's going to be good. And if it's not yet good, it's not yet the end. So you could keep going because it's going to be good. And it's good along the way too, but the real, real good, the excellent good, it's coming to an excellent good. Lots of little tastes of good along the way, but there's an excellent good in the end. And that's hope is looking towards that amazing realization of everyone living in synergy, everyone living in a proactive shalom, you know, not an absence of war, but a a synergy of true peace and and cooperation and elevation of each other because we all see the godliness in each other and want to bring it forward and and work with that. That that's hope for me is seeing that future and working towards it. Beautiful. I want to I want a piece of your hope because that it sounds like it sounds like a sun like a, watching the sunrise literally. Like when you were talking I'm like I'm visualizing the sunrise like you know <laughs> literally beautiful. Thank you so much. Where can people reach you? Like find you, read about you. I don't know. <laughs> That's the truth. I don't put myself out there. Um, I have a website like of archival classes, but it's all archives. And I really haven't updated it in three years. So that's a bite of Torah.com. It's not, a, it's not the whole Torah. It's just a bite, B-I-T-E. So I have a bite of Torah.com. That's just for classes and archive stuff. 
And then um, my new organization, which isn't about me, it's about my organization because it should be bigger than me, um, is coretorah.org. So if you're looking for how to get connected, how to create small groups, how to get mentorship, we provide mentors for women, some men too, but mostly women, and um, in a mentor training program and, um, and all kinds of support for lay leaders and professional leaders in the Jewish community. So that's on coretorah.org. Okay, thank you. And I look forward to having you again and talking about getting rid of guilt and shame. Great, looking forward. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Aliza, for joining me. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.